This is a podcast from the Poetry Society. It's been a lifetime's work trying to live in that aftermath and trying to find language for that experience and for that aftermath. Hello, I'm Emily Berry, editor of the Poetry Review. And today I'm going to be talking to Gail McConnell, whose poems, a selection from her forthcoming book, The Sun is Open, appeared in the spring 2021 issue of the magazine. Gail is the author of two pamphlets, For the Mather, published by Ink, Sweat and Tears, and 14, from Green Bottle Press. The Sun is Open will be published by Penned in the Margins in September. Hi Gail, thank you so much for joining me. Hello Emily, it's lovely to be here. Thanks for having me. I thought we could start maybe with a couple of poems. I wondered if you would read maybe the first three pieces from the review. Sure, I guess a little note of introduction. There is some text here that's in grey, which indicates fine material. And the poems are written these sort of narrow columns. And in the third poem I'll read, I'm going to have to substitute what are indicated as symbols here. There's a vertical stroke and a horizontal stroke. The poem is thinking about the vertical and horizontal plane. And I don't know the best way to translate those symbols, really. They're there because they're uh, they're untranslatable, perhaps. So I'll just leave a little pause, which is for the, the vertical and then the horizontal symbols when I get to that part of the poem. So these are from The Sun is Open. Begin with victim on his back is how this could begin. Place your mouth over his mouth, pinch his nostrils shut. Easier to take what I have found and break it up. Breathe steadily till victim's chest begins to rise. Pause every minute to glue it back the wrong way. Take a deep breath yourself. If there is no air exchange, do not touch him. How did we spin the thread that tethered each to each, me, you, you, me? How did we exist before these letters, all these sounds? I know sound we had enough to sound out the line between us. I had a sign for you. By it I called you, Daddy. You had one for me, the name you gave me between one and two syllables. Gail, you called me, your twice-voiced daughter. He left the vertical, went from to a changing shape, a fall, a turn, 90 degrees. I look up vertical, it turns to vertex, the apex, the crown of the head, a whirlpool swirling into a vert, turning his head, my mother shouting, Bill! Turning it towards what was coming. Thank you so much, that was very powerful. One thing I really find very strong in these poems is how 
I don't know what the word would be, but like they have so many different things coming into them. So just in that reading, you, you introduced it by sort of explaining that there's these different typographical details. You've got singing, there's these kind of different sounds, and this is all happening in a very compact space. And you mentioned how they're these little kind of sort of boxes. So there's quite a lot I'd love to get into around all that. I wondered if maybe it would be helpful for listeners if you could just say a little bit about the book and where it came from, what's behind it and so on. Sure, yeah. So I suppose the kind of autobiographical event around which the poems swirl is my father's murder in 1984. He was a prison governor in the Mays Prison in Belfast and one morning when my mother and I were standing in the front garden waving him off to work. He was shot and killed in the driveway. So I was three and a half and I had this very early experience of of death, of loss, of a traumatic and violent one, but also of all the things that um, kind of led up to that moment in time, history, politics, plantation history, colonialism, class, the troubles, all sorts of things. And so it's been a lifetime's work trying to live in that aftermath and trying to find language for that experience and for that aftermath. And one of the things that I find myself doing in recent years is to be going through a sort of a boxed archive of stuff about my dad's death and his life too, but a lot of newspaper cutouts and Hansard and his diaries and all kinds of things that family members had gathered into a box for me. And I have been sort of trying to work out what to do with that sort of archive of a sort and so some a lot of the fine material in the book comes from newspapers and and poems as well and literary sources too but I find the experience of writing in these narrow columns to be a very freeing one I mean there's a lot of compression that has to happen but they remind me of the sort of columns of newspaper type that I find myself sifting through and, and spreading all over the floor to try to to read them and also of the columns of the Old Testament there's actually quite a lot of biblical references and aspects of a childhood spent in church and in Sunday school and in kind of Christian summer holiday Bible camps and things, which I'd almost forgotten were really formative for me, for my imagination. A lot of my time was spent uh, reading the Bible when I was young. And so I think the shape of these and the compression in the sort of columns, the boxes, has something to do with that as well, I think. It's all unpunctuated, so there's a sort of breathlessness about it, but also it kind of raises the stakes on on the breath and how you punctuate and how you pause and how you run things together or or let yourself have a, a rest, <laughs> a rest in time, which has been really interesting just thinking about how to read these poems and how to bring them into the world that way. I think there's two different experiences that happen, one on the page and one with the breath and they're related but they're they're distinctive too. I've had that experience myself of reading aloud publicly a poem that you've only had in a book before and there's obviously the sort of emotional side of, of that and then what you say about the breath is really interesting because suddenly you're aware of how the poem has kind of kind of captured this breath and then you've got to let it all out or control it or whatever. Yeah it's an extraordinary thing we had a Bob Scanlon from the Poets Theatre in Harvard spend it some time with us in Queens a couple of years ago and he led this amazing MA seminar on uh, well, the performance of poetry, but really what he was doing was bringing the rehearsal techniques of theatre practice to how you read a poem and asking us to think about 
what is the action of a poem with every poem that we look at and to think about tone and breath and pause and timing and to approach the reading of a poem with the same kind of rehearsal sort of mindset that you would bring to theatre and it's been a very formative experience for me in thinking about the embodied experience of poetry maybe but certainly of, of reading poems and how it's perhaps something that you know we often approach with a kind of embarrassment reading our own work or awkwardness and sometimes there's a kind of performed awkwardness and embarrassment with reading just to get around <laughs> the exposure and vulnerability of it because you're having to embody your own work when I saw Jay Bernard perform some of those poems from Surge I just find that breathtaking and extraordinary just in terms of the potential of that moment in time that the poem can be, that event that the poem can be in time. And same with Raymond Antrobus. I read with Raymond in London a couple of years ago in the basement of a waterstone somewhere. And just the way Raymond uses gesture and breath and body and sound, there's something just it was just an extraordinary experience to to be in the presence of those poems. And it felt like the presence of those poems, it was a way in which the poems took up space in time and in that room. I feel like I have a lot to learn about that side of things, but it's really interesting. Well, I definitely, like having heard you read just now and at the um, the launch the other week, I, I definitely feel like I got a sense that you had worked with your reading in some way that the average poet maybe hasn't. You're doing something similar there that's really powerful. It's interesting, you know, that Alice Notley interview in the last, in the issue, you know, where she talks about performance and only coming to understand poems through their performance and I think that's true of your own work as well like actually just having to read that first poem begin with victim it's revealed itself to me in new ways having had to read it for the poetry review launch you know even just the line like place your mouth over his mouth I've been thinking about that in terms of resuscitation obviously because it's taking first aid instructions but when I had to read that line and think about how to punctuate it and where to put the emphasis you know, I was thinking more about ventriloquism and sort of the figure of echo and the, I mean, it's the saying something back stuff, right? It's the kind of speaking for the dead and with the dead and of the dead and the different manoeuvres that we make to, yeah, to do that work. Yeah, having to perform or read these poems aloud has helped me, I think, understand them in other ways or understand the multiple ways they might have meaning. That's a gift of the reading experience, I think, as well. Well, it's interesting you mentioned that line because you've used all this found material in the book and some of that comes from your father's university diary, I think. I was really interested in that. I mean, for personal reasons, because I've also used sort of my mother's found material in my writing. It's a way in which you're actually speaking sort of through his voice. So when you say place your mouth over his mouth, that's sort of exactly what's happening when you're using these passages. It's kind of really amazing. Also, it made me think of something I read a few years ago in the psychoanalyst Darian Leader's book called The New Black. He talks about what he calls borrowed mourning. He says that people were able to address what he calls the unspeakable parts of their narrative by using the words of other people. And I wondered if that was something that resonated with you and how you sort of came to decide to use these texts in your work. I think I read an interview with you, Emily, where you quote that Darian Leader work and it really resonated with me at the time when I read that. But after the fact, right, it's always, you know, you have that conscious 
understanding of what you've done unconsciously and without your understanding afterwards and then you can theorize it a little bit i like to have that belatedness <laughs> with my own work but absolutely you know the other person who springs to mind here actually is sam riviere kim kardashian's marriage which is a book i teach and i'm interested in when poets can take the kind of seemingly banal or benign sort of material and make it speak in new ways and the other book I suppose I had in mind was something like Maggie Nelson's Jane, A Murder, where she writes about her aunt's murder and she uses her aunt's diaries and changes them in certain ways and makes them into kind of lyric poems. But it's a very fraught undertaking because of that, the ethical as well as aesthetic difficulty of kind of speaking for the dead or or changing, ventriloquizing the dead, really. It's something I'm really interested in. I've just been reading Diana Foss's essay, Corpse Poem, such a great title, which is really good on Emily Dickinson on how the dead speak. But I think I was aware that it felt kind of too easy to try to sort of animate the dead subject, if you like, by just quoting the diaries in their sort of personal everydayness. You know, I, I did this, I did that, sort of like a Frank O'Hara of the dead or something. I didn't want to just do that. I mean, there are there's a small bit where I, I do quote from my dad's diary slightly more in that in that way to give you a sense of him. But I think I'm probably more interested in the difficulty of the undertaking in a way and how working with some of the advertisements or the tube map or the first aid instructions, that kind of generic material that's in every printed diary, that was the material that I really found was able to to resonate for me. The first aid instructions, you know, are kind of, they come up again and again. And something I learned from Karen Carson too, I think I like that possibility of letting ordinary language or kind of very recognisable language for it to find a new resonance just through partly through the parallelism of setting it side by side with other things but you know it's setting it in relation you might say with other things i mean language does the work if you let it you know the first aid instruction does the work if you you know which is great takes the pressure of having to write something <laughs> lyrical and profound <laughs> <laughs> i don't know i'm not really answering your question probably but those are my my wandering thoughts it's really interesting to just hear how you've approached it for me, part of the sort of book's kind of unsettling power is the way it sort of manages to convey this child's eye view of events whilst delivering what is quite grave information some of the time, or a lot of the time, but there is also a lot of lightness and play in there, you know, reference to alpha bites and um, colouring in and so on. Just, I was like, I love alpha bites. <laughs> you know alpha bites. I'm so excited that you know alpha bites. <laughs> oh, yeah. Surely everybody doesn't, don't they? Maybe You'd like to hope thing. so. I had a, just a very strong memory of eating them as a child. But, um, <laughs> the breathlessness was part of that. It reminded me of the way like a child will sort of report to you the day's events with just everything is jumbled up together. There's no kind of filtering things out. And yeah, I found it really interesting to compare the style with your earlier poem, Typeface. So a, a longer poem that's on some of the same material, which for me felt by contrast in a very different adult register, not to say that if it's adult is good or bad, but just it's more analytical, it's sort of coming at it from a different perspective. And I wondered if it was a conscious decision to kind of move to this childhood viewpoint. Is it more freeing to sort of try and be in this different childhood world? Or was that just because that was the time at which it was all happening? That's how it came out. Yeah, Typeface is this long poem, it's about 320 lines, it was in Black Box Manifold in about, I think it was 2016. And it's called Typeface because I was given a, the state produced a report, the historical inquiry team produced a report that was published in Comic Sans, which was a report about my father's murder. 
And so having this report that's written in this, you know, jazz hands font gave me a kind of a, an ironic entry point into that material. But typeface does exist in quite a detached and angry and ironic mode. And as you say, an adult mode, absolutely. It was one of the earliest things I wrote. You know, I feel like I've come to writing poetry again, I might say, quite late in life. So when I started writing typeface, I didn't really even think I was writing a poem. I just was putting fingers to keys to see what would happen. And it was a really important poem to write. But looking at it now, I can see that it does have that kind of detachment. And there's a curious way in which you know, the event of my father's murder is the only thing in its sights, whereas life is just more expansive and complicated and intricate than that. And I did want to try to write, to come back at the material which was in the archive, but to do something more expansive and to try to get that quality of childhood and of a childlike register, I suppose, into the work. And I wrote it before our son was born. We have a toddler, my partner and I, who's going to be three very soon. But it was at a time when I was starting to imagine myself as a parent, which had not felt like a very possible thing for a long time. So I was starting to imagine that. So I was thinking about attachment and formation and childhood and parenthood and language and all of that too. I think that kind of breathlessness, like, yeah, that's is absolutely in that kind of childlike flow of all things happening at once, all spaces and all times. That was also a source of joy too, you know, I wanted there to be some joy in the book and there was something about writing into the boxes, you know, because there's a way in which you can just set up a template of a box on, in Word and sort of just write into the box. <laughs> I think it kind of freed me to become more childlike in my language in certain ways and because you can kind of have a, a continuousness of flow in the process of writing it itself and there's a lot of editing that happens obviously but there was something in that process that I think allowed me to write more of that childlike language which I think we're too ready to unlearn but actually I think it's the core of poetry in a lot of ways. Well that also comes up a lot in your pamphlet for the mother there's a lot of play with language and the sort of like returning to that sort of early language that we have before we can sort of properly speak. There was a really sort of quite moving link between those two texts, like Father Mother is this exploration of parenthood and its kind of joys and discoveries, and The Sun is Open. It has also got this sort of sense of wonder running through it, even though, of course, it's got this terrible loss as part of what you're talking about. But there's this knitting together that happens through language. I guess I wondered how you feel parenthood has impacted your experience as a writer, but also how you feel your experience of losing a parent very young has impacted you as a writer. I was listening to Front Row the other week and Kayo Chingonyi was speaking about his new book, which includes some poems responding to the deaths of his parents, which happened when he was quite young. And he said something that I found very amazing, which was something about the possibilities that bereavement can give you, which as someone who also lost a parent young, is not something that you always think about, but it's, I think it's very important to acknowledge. I don't know if that's a very coherent question. Mm. Oh, I feel like we could sit with that for a long time. That idea makes sense to me, but I'm not sure if I could articulate more than that, the idea that there are possibilities. You know, it sounds maybe strange to say, but in some ways I'm, I am grateful for having an experience of loss so early. I feel like it, you know... I, I don't know, it's hard to speak about, but there's something about, we all live with loss on a sort of moment to moment basis. And when you have a kind of traumatic, profound, 
one which is sort of an, an obvious loss. I, I don't know, I think it readies you for, for all of the others. You know, there's a way in which you have to kind of very quickly come to terms with it and find ways of adapting and surviving. And I think that's why I've been so interested in writing about creatures who are like the octopus and the worm and the narwhal. I wrote about in my first pamphlet who have adapted all these sort of strategies for survival. So maybe that's something to do with the possibilities of it. But it's a funny thing. I think when you become a parent, there are all these kind of doublings and triplings that happen. You become the child that you have had and you become the mother that you were and the father that you were. And you start imagining yourself in this network of relation where you're sort of both young and old. And I start to imagine the forms of parenthood that my parents practiced and then that I am in turn passing, you know, or practicing with our son. and. I think that's why writing in a villanelle form was so useful as a way of thinking about my relationship with my mother, with my father, and then with myself as a kind of father-mother who's, you know, it's a book that's thinking about queer parenthood. I'm not a biological parent to Finn, and I was very anxious about what kind of parent I would be. But in the end, I think it's language that, it's languages that enable attachments. You know, there's the kind of the pre-linguistic stuff of babble and nonsense and also languages of the body, the language of gesture and cuddle and touch and holding Finn close to me. It was, it was all of those things that allowed attachment and formation and bonding and none of those things have anything to do with biology. Of course biology is important too, um, but I didn't have that biological attachment so I had to, I was really curious to learn about the ways that attachment happens and I was also really curious to become a parent and to see what it must have been like for my father. You know, there was a way in which I always thought, because I was so young when my father was killed and I didn't remember my life when I was up until sort of three and a half, it felt impossible to fathom that we had a relationship at all. And so I suppose that's why something like the archive takes on such significance, because it's almost like the evidence that he did exist, that there was a relationship, that, you know, they become a kind of very poor substitute for your memory. But actually the gift of parenthood has been realising that even just in the three years that I've had with Finn, the way that we know one another is extraordinary. And the languages that we share and the ways that we play in language together is just an extraordinary gift. So I'm aware now of the ways in which I am like my father and also the ways in which having Finn has allowed me to connect with the child that I am too. What is it that Winnicott says? Like the, the five-year-old contains the four-year-old, the three-year-old, the two-year-old, the one-year-old. The one and on any given day, you'll see all those different cells within the child. And I feel like that's true of us as adults too, <laughs> that we, like Russian dolls, carry all of these cells within us. And a good poem can range around all those different cells. Well, could we maybe hear Untitled Villanelle since we're delving into it? Sure. So this has two epigraphs, which I'll read first of all. I have often longed to see my mother in the doorway, Grace Paley, because having a father made me want a father, Sandra Newman. Untitled Villanelle. I have often longed to see my mother tap dance in a top hat like she did before he died. Having had a father made me want a father. A mather, madder, mether is a measure that keeps its shape and holds what's stored inside. I often see my mother. Mistype the word it stretches to a father. A cartload carries fodder hitched outside. A father made me. 
You come to know the one against the other. You measure till the meanings coincide. I have often longed to see my father. My mother's mother died before her daughter was a mother. Alone she gave me all she could provide. Not having a father made me want to be a father. What am I to you? Mother, father, neither, like cells names split and double unified. I have often longed to mother, mother, father, father, mother, mother, father, father, mother. Thank you. That's really beautiful. I love that you call father, mother, a nonsense word that tells the truth, which is just a perfect way of putting it. And I think that's something that's happening in that poem, like you get in nursery rhymes or I suppose nonsense poetry, that you get something from it that you can't put into words. You've got the same interest in sound occurring in The Sun is Open. There's the poem I think you read at the start where you have the sounds that you and your father have for each other. I wondered how you sort of became interested in sound. Oh, Flip, I don't know where to begin. I mean, you know, like you, I've been really excited by Denise Riley's work in the last while and language is affect, impersonal passion, language is affect and words of selves, I just think are an extraordinary books about what language is, you know, that language is always already outside and inside, that it's public and private at the same time that we speak, but we're also spoken, that we kind of chatter away with the words of others already. I just find all of that so exciting. And I think it allows you to, you know, attune your ear a little bit to what sounds there are. And yeah, I mean, playing with Finn has been so much fun, making sounds, being playful with the tongue, nonsense. I mean, there's stuff in the book that actually surprised me in The Sun is Open where I there's some speaking in tongues, <laughs> which was actually a, a part of my uh, past, my dark evangelical past that I, it, it's not so dark. I'm trying to kind of recover it and welcome it into the frame and not be so embarrassed about it because it was, you know, it's part of me, but it's a really interesting experience the idea that you can sort of give voice to something in a kind of nonsense, a kind of spiritual nonsense. It's not something that I practice now. But again, it's interesting that idea of, you know, overflow of excess, of spontaneity, of trying to give voice to something that is um, not easily spoken in, in language. And I was involved in a really interesting project a while back with voice hearers, people who had an experience of what they would describe as voice hearing, sometimes on the more extreme end of things and sometimes in quite disturbing ways. And it was a really interesting project of working with them and thinking about how do you make audible and visible for other people the language that only you hear or the voices that only you hear, the sounds that accompany you in your everyday and how that interacts with what we might think of as quote unquote external sounds or the sounds of the world. And, you know, we worked with a sound artist on that project. We went on some sound walks and we used sort of binaural technology to think about the 3D experience of sound and that project was really interesting for me just thinking again about language as being sort of part of sound as well and the English language with all of its histories and etymologies and words that we're trying to figure out is fascinating and also there's this quality of sound and of kind of nonsense or of finding language where you're kind of sounding out syllables and things that's actually how it all begins you know before we know what words are that's those are the first signs that we make the first signs that we hear and that's how we form relationships with our parents is through that gobbledygook so if we can get back to that then maybe we're getting onto something that we is that that kind of beginner's mind thing yeah I was just thinking this obviously if you hear a language you don't 
speak it just sounds like a load of unfamiliar sounds and there's something really exciting about that that when you then get into the being able to actually know what they're saying something's lost maybe <laughs> I hope we'll, I'll always have beginner's mind I like that idea <laughs> <laughs> um yeah it'd be great to hear your final two or three poems in the review and then I'll have maybe ask you one final question I could talk to you for all day but we don't have that luxury so well I've really enjoyed your readings of these poems Emily and what you've noticed so thank you for your eye and your ear you're very attentive I hope you're right about the things you see we burned the boats, we burned the sweets, we burned the packages they came in, burned the leaves along the path, we burned the bits of paper dropped on pavement slabs, we burned the sign that said wet paint, burned the grass and then the edges of our shoes, we burned our laces at the ends, the plastic melting as they frayed, we burned a tract left on a bench, we burned the matches in the box, then burned the box, the matches came in. My father rejoices. That's what it means. My name, I mean, but did he? What, if anything, was the source of his joy? Was there joy between us, before he left, or after he walks through the hall, the squeaky door saddle across the tiles, walking outside into the morning, into those bullets sailing through the blue air, into perforation, into a heap, into gravel, an almost human shape, into death, into silence, or whatever comes after. Oh, Father, my Father, my Father in heaven, Father with his angels, my Father is always working. Yes, Father. No one knows the Father. No one goes to the Father. Bury my Father, only Father. My Father has given me all things. Every plant which my Father in heaven did not plant. O oh, Father, my Father, my Father in heaven. Father alone, who remains in me. I wanted to ask you sort of quite a general question, really, to finish, which is just the question about how you became a writer. It's always a, one of those questions where, as the writer, you're like, oh, not this again, but it's always fascinating to hear. Did you start writing when you were very young? Did you have a kind of moment where you were like, this is it, I'm going to do it? <laughs> Oh goodness, yes, I did write when I was younger, stories mostly, and I think when I was younger I would have said that I wanted to become an author, I think, or a children's author. And then I suppose I became a kind of serious-minded critic. I did a, an English and history degree and I did a master's and then I did a PhD. And then I published a book based on my PhD and I was in that critical zone of things and I thought that was where my life was headed. And then I just swerved into writing poems and it's only really been in the last about six years I'd say. And I had some things to unlearn, you know, because I was busy writing about Seamus Heaney and Derek Mahan and, and people like that and it's just such a different state of mind to be 
writing your own poems. So some of it was related to that aftermath of my father's death that I think I needed to try to find language and form for. So it just arose out of very personal needs really and some of it was just, I remember it was the 20th of March 2015, I know because I, I named the poem kind of as a date after it, where there was a, a solar eclipse. I was actually lying in bed reading I think and my partner Beth was leaving the house and I remember she turned and said to me before she left the room, don't look at the sun. And it just struck me as a brilliant phrase and it became the first line in a poem about that eclipse which is written in these kind of little bits. But yeah, don't don't look at the sun. It was again one of those moments of someone else's language, of ordinary language in a way, of something, you know, a chance remark which just contains so much. And I think just the process of writing that down and seeing what I could do with it was such a lesson in attunement too, you know, just if you open your ear, the sounds rush in and beginnings can occur. And so I published that poem in the Manchester Review and I got such a kick out of doing it. I thought, okay, I'm going to keep trying to see if I can do this again and again and again. But it's, you know what it's like, you go poem by poem. Every time you write one, you think that might be the last. So beginner's mind. <laughs> and did you manage not to look at the sun? Um, I did look at the sun, that's the truth of it. <laughs> but I did get out the red colander. The poem is sort of trying my bad attempts to, to figure out. I mean, it's the movement between sort of planetary happenings and the Ikea colander, you know, and uh, somewhere between those states of being. Yeah, there's me and the poem. No, she knew I was stupid enough to look at the sun, so that's why she needed to tell me I shouldn't do it. <laughs> Maybe that's a good metaphor for the process of writing poetry in some way. Somewhere between the planets and Ikea, the poem happens. Thank you so much, Gail. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. I'll just say for the listeners, you can get Gail's book. I think it's coming out in September from Penned in the Margins. So keep an eye out for that. And I think her poem Untitled Villanelle is on the Poetry Review website from a few issues back. And she also wrote a behind the poem piece, which you can find there. Father Mather is available from Ink, Sweat and Tears. So thank you so much, Gail. Oh, it's been such a pleasure, Emily, and it's lovely to talk to someone who gets some of this stuff, you know, from the inside too. So I'm a huge, uh, huge admiration for your work and uh, what you're about. So thanks for taking the time to talk with me. We hope you enjoyed listening to this Poetry Society podcast. To find out more about the Poetry Society and how you can become involved, visit poetrysociety.org.uk.